proof of presence data. This is the kind of data that proves that we're looking not just at people who like our brand, but at people who are using the brand and are coming in and buying stuff with us. When you use that proof of presence data and you join it up, because it always sits sort of siloed in, in separate parts, maybe you've got like a Wi-Fi login pot of data and then you've got another pot of data which might be your order at table app and then you've got another pot of data that might be your voucher redemptions. When you join all this together you can build a really clear and compelling picture of how frequently, how recently and how loyal your customers are. And when you've got that kind of information not only can you get a really true picture of your business but it's all actionable insights. So you can turn it into marketing almost straight away. Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkson. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out. The kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. BizSimply is the all-in-one HR workforce management roll-turn operation software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. We join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in the way we lead our people, how we operate, how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. In this episode, we are joined by the amazing Victoria Seal, who is the founder of Data Hawks. And they are data analysts who identify, reveal, and quantify the most valuable customers to operators and help them, of course, to find more of them. I really enjoyed this conversation, Victoria, due to throughout my career, I've always been obsessed with having strong data to make better leadership decisions. And Victoria gives a clear understanding why data is not boring, but essential for making better decisions about your customer and business. She explains important that you focus on the right data as an operator, not focusing on vanity data such as likes on social media, etc., but focusing on your existing customer data to understand your current customers and their behaviors and patterns to build better strategies for loyalty and achieve much stronger return on investment over time. She also paints a picture that the hospitality industry is not very good at being organized and disciplined around working with data. She explains that we need more patience to have more success with data. She explains especially a lot of decisions are based on God instead of facts. We uh, talk about the learnings we have had with data and connect that with some great examples from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, and also the film Moneyball. It comes up in the conversation. Victoria explains the power of data and how it can actually optimize your customer experience by really understanding who your customers are. She mentioned that most operators do not understand who their customers are. Along the way, we visited many other themes. Discounts will kill your business, customer loyalty, personalization, the mindset of post-pandemic customers, understanding your customer's avatar, the power of understanding how to connect marketing data with labor data, and much more. Before you tune in, please sign up to our weekly newsletter on hospitalitymavericks.com, packed with more Maverick insights, strategies, and tools. Now, grab notebook, pen, coffee, and let's get started talking data. I've been really looking forward to today's conversation. It's a, it's a subject very close to, to the heart and mind of me as an operator, it's all about data and you think oh my god let me let me switch off quickly because data data is so boring but actually when you start understanding data you understand you're looking for patterns of human behavior and when you know you you find the right pattern you can do incredible things in your business but i also know in business in any business but i know hospitality for the most we like to to feel, we like to have this gut feel about things. And sometimes it's not really good for us because we're not asking ourselves the right questions. So therefore, I'm really looking forward to have a conversation with Victoria today about uh, data. And she, uh, she has a long background in hospitality and marketing and data. And, and we will dive into data and gut. And we also talk about how you can actually accelerate your business with data. And we're gonna and we're gonna talk about much more than that. But let's get started and welcome to the show, Victoria. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Just delighted to be here with you. Yeah, I started out and said we, we will talk about some, some boring stuff about data, but uh, I think it's quite exciting. I know you do the same from the conversation you have prior to this conversation. So could you tell people a bit about what uh, your business is about, Data Hawks, what you guys are up to, what you're doing, what kind of purpose and problem are you solving in the world? You're quite active on LinkedIn talking about data and, and the need of actually starting to utilize all this data we have in our businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, you're the second person that's told me today that data is really boring. And we know it's not boring. Like what you can do with it is exciting, but it's it's so true that people have got a perception that, that data is really boring. Um, I, I founded DataHawks at the end of 2019 because I was a marketing director and I was really frustrated that I didn't know who my customer was. I didn't know who they were or how they behaved or why they behaved in the way they did. And it, it sort of struck me as being a bit odd that we spent so much money and made so many decisions on so little knowledge. And, you know, we're, we're kind of playing with lots of stuff here. You know, this is this is stuff that has far-reaching implications across the business and also on the team members who, who work with you. So it's really important we get that stuff right. And I realise that I think in hospitality, we're probably 25 years behind retail in terms of our understanding of data and using that data to understand our, our customers. And I just really wanted to help hospitality operators and marketers use data to you know to build insight and build information within their own businesses to drive their own success and and so that's why i founded data Hawks. so interesting that uh, you say you know 20 years years behind i have often talked about hospitality and digitalization in, in, in the same and then data and digitalization are very close connected we can have a conversation about that but in my view that you know uh, that has that has probably changed the last year it's definitely we definitely turned on more digital channels but therefore we also got much more data in uh and i guess what is it that you help these businesses with because i guess most hospitality businesses yes we have loads of data but but again i think may often the problem is as the ceo or the decision maker you don't know what to look at and nobody really are showing you what data to look at and actually, you know, filter that data down to something you can make great decisions on. I think that as an industry, we focus on the wrong kind of data. So, you know, we get very keen on things like social media data and, you know, the data behind um, people engaging with our with our posts and our social media campaigns. And they're just vanity metrics, really. You know, the likes and, you know, the follows, they're all just vanity metrics. And what we need to get involved in is proof of presence data. This is the kind of data that proves that we're looking not just at people who like our brand, but at people who are using the brand and are coming in and, and buying stuff with us. And when you use that proof of presence data and you join it up, because it always sits sort of siloed in, in separate parts, maybe you've got like a Wi-Fi login pot of data and then you've got another pot of data which might be your order at table app and then you've got another pot of data that might be your voucher redemptions when you join all this together you can build a really clear and compelling picture of how frequently how recently and how loyal your customers are and when you've got that kind of information not only can you get a really true picture of your business but it's all actionable insights so you can turn it into marketing almost straight away how good are we actually in the industry when you take it some you know from how good are we actually uh, at, at collecting data because i'm indicating almost that we are maybe not good at it but that's maybe just my perception because i don't do what you do every day look into different hospitality business seeing the data set so how good are people actually collecting that data clarifying and then using it for decision making and what level if we say zero is really poor and 10 is really strong and I know it's a broad measure, every business and everything in context. I know that. I'd say we're awful at it, actually. Um, you know, when I was a when I was a marketing director, only what two years ago, I was in my last marketing director role, and we didn't have any accessible data that we were looking at. You know, even 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 every so often, let alone using it to inform our strategy. And and I think we're terrible. I think that we've really adopted digital stuff over the last year. You know, I read all the time that we've kind of jumped forward 10 years and six months in terms of our adoption of, um, of technology. 
but data still seems to be a bit of a, you know, just a bit of a byproduct of that technology rather than the, the stuff that should be powering your, your strategy. Um, and I think there's a load of reasons why we're really bad at, you know, bad at it. I think that as an, in, as an industry, we rely so much on, on gut instinct and, and passion and drive and, you know, hard work and energy that we almost think, well, if we're using data, everything's going to get really scientific and it might sort of take the heart and soul out of what we do. And, and, and that's, not, that's not true. And I think there's also a perception that using data is something that's really complicated as well and something that, you know, you have to be some really highbrow data scientist. And that's also not true. All we're doing is exactly what you said, which is to take the data that's generated by people's visits we're looking for patterns in that data and we're able to spot where you should be best directing your marketing to get the, the best return. It's really about ROI. And I think that's something that would resonate with any operator or marketer. Is it because that people don't take the time out to, to build a process for this? Because like we, you know, in hospitality, we're quite good if there's a process established, it's followed from A to Z. That's the, the good operator. They create systems and processes and then people follows them and, they create some kind of outcome. Is that what's missing when it comes to, to data and discipline around data? Definitely think discipline's a, a problem because you know what we're like in hospitality. You know, we, we're always looking for the next new thing to sort of throw our, throw our energy behind and we get really enthusiastic about stuff and we really quite often will fail to, to see something through to fruition. And using data takes time because the data is constantly sort of changing and evolving and adding richness and, and changing the picture. So first of all, I think that we really lack patience. You know, why would we use data when we can put a, you know, buy one, get one free offer out tomorrow and, and fill our restaurants? You know, why would we do that? Well, it's, I mean, these are decisions that are made every day, you know, um, and we could be avoiding having to put all those discounts out by making sure that we're using the data to tell us who, who we should be talking to. I think the other thing is as well, is that with, with data, it relies on you looking at what you're getting and then making decisions based on the fact because, because data is factual. You know, it's a factual representation of what's been happening in your business and you can see the return and you can see the impact of the decisions that you make on that data. And that's not something that really sits comfortably with with many senior operators because you know we like to we we like to sort of use our gut instinct and we like to show our expertise um, by making decisions without data, and so it kind of takes a certain mindset to to say we'll use the data and then we'll overlay the data with the passion and the innovation and all of the stuff that this industry is incredible at, and then you've got something that's going to have a massive impact. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. There's a study of uh, uh, of companies that did really well on the the stock exchange, the the 500 index in in the US over a 20 30 year period. And Jim Collins in his book Good to Great, and there's a whole chapter dedicated to face the brutal facts as well. So these companies were already in that stage. We're talking about the 80s. And uh, the 80s, I think it was the early 80s, was actually already looking at data and finding out what is our three top data point we need to follow. And it was not just sales. It was something that generated sales or something that created a positive customer visit uh, interaction. And actually, they, and they went all the back into their operation trying to understand what are the, the, the things we need, the dials we need to touch to actually to improve our business little by little. And they didn't expect to have a spike straight away. They expected to build a momentum with 1% improvement every year. And we look at them compared to other uh, stocks. What was interesting was that you know, their business were very consistent between 3 and 6% improvement a year on the stock exchange. And then you had General Electric that went up and down, up and down, one, one vanity decision after the other. Some of them with a bit of luck were very good for the share price and others was not very good, actually just killed it. Uh, and that means that it changed a lot of round in the leadership team as well, because nobody knew actually where they were going. And also maybe they had a plan, but they didn't know if that worked. But these guys had a long-term plan they could measure on. And I think that's really interesting. So it's not a new phenomenon. It's actually already been happening in retail and hospitality businesses as well. There's, um, you know, that, that film Moneyball. 
and the guide basically makes decisions about you know who he who you should be sort of picking and it's all about sort of like there's marginal gains and making the right sort of set of choices and using the data to come to that and there's this guy um that i was reading about and I, I can't remember his name but he's basically made a living out of going to all of these big football teams in america and saying the data is saying that you should be picking these players and you should be fielding them at this point during the game and if you do all of this stuff there's every chance you're going to get enough points and enough gains to finish in the sort of like top three positions and he's worked with pretty much every you know football team you can think of and he's presented his findings and every single time the you know the the ceo and the the team captain have been blown away by the insight and the opportunity in this in this presentation and they've done nothing with it and, and I think there's a huge difference between knowing that it exists, knowing the right thing to do, having the plan, having the strategy and sort of saying, OK, if we do this, we can expect some incredible returns. But yet there's still such a temptation to kind of go, but I'm going to do that because that's what feels right to me. Um, and, I, and I think in hospitality in particular, because we're such a feeling industry, we're going to have to show some really compelling evidence to get people to start swinging away from just wanting to use their you know their 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 heart and their soul and their feelings to make decision and start following the data you said something really interesting from a marketing point of view because i've seen that and challenged that a couple of times uh, the discount the pricing i call the the the, the pizza express uh, syndrome of uh, almost discounting yourself to uh, out of business um because we, we 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 actually are part of a business where we took a leadership decision we thought because it was tight times that our avatar because we didn't understand who our avatar was they just want some discount but they didn't come to us for discount they came to us for a quality experience they maybe had less visit in that period but when they came they want that they didn't want an over full restaurant just taking two for one or 50% off and all the crazy things we did. And actually, you know, if we, and then we went back after done that for six months and said, actually, if we just said we had 25% less revenue uh, at the old price, the, the profit would have been 6% higher. We wouldn't have lost money for six months. And that was like our handbrake. But already at that point, people had changed their perception of us as a brand. So we were now in their minds, oh, you become that cheap, coffee burger place oh my god that's uh so and that's very difficult to come back from that uh, and i think often in hospitality we have a need as i think you've written in a piece about as well try to avoid jumping to discounting and you, you said it before as well like try to stop up and find out what can really actually drive the the relationship and the engagement with these customers I think when the whole discounting sort of phenomena really, really took off and, you know, it, I suppose it was a bit of a perfect storm because it was when many brands were getting websites. And so from a customer perspective, you're able to look at two brands' websites and compare the offer and compare the perceived value and make a decision almost in real time where you wanted to spend your money. So, so brands had to get, you know, relatively competitive in a very obvious way that translates to a website because a website doesn't necessarily tell you what the experience is, is going to be like. But then that happened, you know, at the height of, I think we called it the credit crunch at the time, you know, so we were deep in, deep in recession, there was financial crisis. And, and I think the industry sort of like, you know, responded to that and said, look, let's just go all out on discounts because we need to get people sitting in these seats. And I think I really understood that at the time. I think that, you know, it's a very natural reaction to sort of say, well, you know, how, how can we, how can we sell a lot of something? Let's compete on price. But I remember sort of sitting in boardrooms around that time. And there was one conversation that I had with a, a you know, a bunch of my, my fellow leadership team. And I said, I kind of think that, well, there's two things that came out of the conversation. The first one was me sort of like thinking, what might be a good idea is if all the leaders of all of the businesses, so the Pizza Expresses and all of the big brands at the time, how about everybody gets together and almost declares a bit of an amnesty on it and says, we're all going to stop discounting together? Because this isn't a brand problem. This is an industry problem now. And everybody sort of laughed in the room. You know, it was just hysterical laughter at the thought that we could we could do something as as bold as talking to each other. And the second part of it was 
everybody was discounting but one brand that I can think of wasn't and that was TGI Fridays in the UK and Karen Forrester who was the CEO at that time she sort of went out and you know was very vocal about I'm not going to discount I'm going to invest money in the experience I'm going to invest money in people I'm going to invest money in training and I sat in meetings where other people sort of laughed at that and just said oh you know Karen doesn't know how to run a business you know that what a, what a foolish you know notion that you can just do this through training and people alone, and yet when you look at the position that TGI Fridays were in, um you know and the continued growth they had, um when when I was marketing director at TGI Fridays, I mean the numbers that were coming through that business would make you weep with envy, and that was built on a strategy of not discounting but of investing in quality and investing in the experience, um and many of the brands that at the time were laughing at at that approach you know well where where are they now but i think i think to to wrap that kind of discount that discount piece up i really understood it at the time and i understood how we got there i think to rely on it now is just lazy it really is just lazy and i understand why something like eat out to help out you know had such a, a massive draw for operators because people were desperate you know people were absolutely desperate they needed people in the business they needed the 10 pound that the government were going to subsidize you know they needed people coming through the door and i com i completely under i completely understand why people would have done that but i think now if we're still reliant on discounts to try and get us through the other side of of this recovery when there are so many tactics you know to grow your business and there's been so much written and there's so many platforms and there's so much talk and so many of our platforms we're only using like five or ten percent of the functionality within those big platforms that that we use i think to just sort of fall back on on discounts now i think would be just complete laziness and and it would really disappoint me to to see the industry go there again It'd be interesting to know what you learned from the uh, because there's been like different you know energy voices around the, the eat out to help scheme and most uh you know the smaller the operator i talk with or a number of units if they definitely have one unit they were not a fan of it because they already were a premium offer so they're not interested in giving their food and put the pressure on an operation that's been down for a long time so they had no you know interest but they had to participate as you said to get hold of that spare cash so I understand from a government point of view what they were trying to do. They were trying to say to people, the world is back. We can go out and enjoy the, the summer. Um, and then they, you know, then there's another political agenda and that then they could blame hospitality when it all went wrong over was was again was wrong, was wrong when you look at the data. Uh, um, but the interesting thing is that is 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 it was it a success then for the operators? Did they actually get did they actually get a better business out of the either out to help scheme or what what have you learned looking at that from a data point of view i can answer that bit straight away because um i did some analysis on some data that came through i'm sure you won't mind me mentioning it um the the track 2 app that airship run and this was um the track and trace app and we just anonymized all the data within it but we wanted to get a bit of a picture of the impact of eat out to help out and we saw something really interesting and entirely predictable at the same time, which was when um, we got into that sort of, was it was it July or August? I think it was August, wasn't it, that Eat Out to Help Out ran? And that first week of August, you saw people coming back in that we hadn't seen in the data for quite a long time previously. And it seemed to sort of re, uh, I, I suppose, reactivate people who were maybe lapsing or, or lapsed um, to, to visit brands and there was an incredible amount of frequency you know we were seeing frequency in in some of these brands you know both with that that app and and other um bits of analysis i've done we saw that frequency was was hugely increased as well so the discount was driving people through the doors it was changing behavior and it was getting people through the door but what was interesting and very predictable was that as soon as eat out to help our ended they just disappeared. We just didn't see them back in the data again. And so it was a very sort of short term burst. It was a shot in the arm and it was, you know, put some money in the till and it was everything that, you know, that it was designed to do. Um, but, you know, as an as an ongoing strategy, it it was terrifying to me when I was hearing everybody saying, we want to continue with this. We want another eat out to help out. 
because I was thinking if you looked at your own data, you would see that this is not a strategy. You would see that that this is wrong. Um, so I, I think I think that's the the first thing. And the second thing is that whenever you've got high volumes of people packing into a business, the service, the experience has to suffer. It does. And I know that when we were sort of discounting at brands I've worked with in the past and we started discounting on a Saturday because sales had got so, you know, so tricky, we discount on a Saturday. Of course, everybody wanted to redeem a discount on a Saturday because that's the day they want to go out. And the NPS score that's measuring, you know, people's delight and, you know, satisfaction would fall through the floor. And then you're trying to pick up the pieces of everybody's really poor perception of you as a brand and everybody's talking about how rubbish you are and it's awful and I'll only ever go there if I've got a discount. And the marketing team are trying to pick up the pieces and change the perception and the operators are just really confused and sort of saying, look, we, we're trying here and we couldn't help it. We were slammed and, and, and nobody's happy. Nobody's happy. And the customer's not even happy because if the customer was saying, I keep going back to that brand and that discount has made me incredibly loyal and I go there and I understand that the you know the experience might not be what I want it to be because we've got a higher volume of people coming in you know I understand that that would be one thing but those customers are unforgiving they're still you know they're still scoring the service down they're still leaving negative feedback they're still writing poor reviews on on Google reviews um and so I think I think we've got into a bit of a situation as an industry and as a society where if you have to convince, a, you know, a, a, a whole market, if you have to convince the public of the safety to go into a restaurant by giving them £10, I think that says everything about, you know, how reliant this market and this industry has become on discounts. And I think now is the time to try and break that pattern. We're never going to get a better opportunity than we've got now to break that discount habit. No, it's a, it's a great opportunity for many things within what we've done that doesn't serve us as, as businesses and, and the people that work in the industry actually rewrite that playbook now and actually take a different approach and maybe actually do 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 less but better and charge more because people don't mind to, to pay that when they, they go out. That's quite a, and it's, it's quite interesting. I, I've talked with a, uh, a pop group that's actually now have uh, reduced their menus and will charge more for better and put better quality on than better quality produce. They're going to go local, uh, create better environment for their staff, actually reinvest that money they can win because they still believe that people are hungering about coming out. And it's not about the amount of choice, it's how about they actually want to have a conversation with a friend over a, a, a good meal. Uh, and not about 20 things they can choose between. And that's quite interesting. And that, that's a, a radical change in their approach to uh, to, to both the pricing and, and the food bit was always was driven by some kind of discount in the weekend, which is absolutely mad, as the director said, because the only thing we we're doing was put extra pressure on our operation and uh, the quality of what we delivered was just sliding every week. And, and there's a bigger problem for brands as well, which is brands need to be distinct and memorable. And and I think that that's become a massive problem over the last 10 years. There are, you know, and I, I won't mention the brands, but there are lots of brands out there that sell pretty much the same stuff. They look pretty much the same. And if you take the logo down and were blindfolded and left in there, you really struggle to say where you were because the brands aren't distinct and memorable. And, and I see the same in retail as well, that, you know, everybody's just selling each other's stuff. You know, they're all trying to kind of, you know, take a bit of that and get into a bit of this and get into a bit of that to drive revenue rather than focusing on the core of their business and absolutely nailing that. Because if you if you concentrate on the core of a business and deliver that exceptionally well, um, you know, that you're, you're always going to have you're always going to have a market for that, you know. Um, but it, it really does come down to focusing on the operations and, and delivering that really perfectly, but also having a brand and, a, and an experience that's distinct and memorable that people can hook onto and go, oh, I want to go there. That's where I want to spend my money. You said something in the beginning as well that fits very well into this that made me think about you know, your, your customer avatar, um, really knowing them and look at the data to understand them. And I, I was very lucky to spend a number of years with McDonald's. And I learned at some point that we really understood in every area we operated who our 
superfans was and who we were serving. Was it families or was it, you know, traffic coming by if it was a motorway? And actually also there will be days where you're serving different people and they consume differently at time. At some points you don't sell up and to other points it's really good to sell up because... Um, and that was all put into the training program. I didn't understood that before I became very senior at McDonald's, that actually that data mining, if you can say so, and understanding these behaviors, that, that you always were relevant compared to your super fans that every organization has, because else every organization have people that sign up to their newsletters. So I always say that, so who is your super fan? We don't know. Do you have a newsletter? Yeah, yeah. Well, probably the people that wanted to put in their email Okay, you will probably have some that signed up for Wi-Fi. But besides that, if they haven't deleted you, you must perceive that within that that group of people as super fans. Is that what operators should start to to focus their data efforts and their marketing and operational effort at and understanding who these super fans are uh, almost by name? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny because I use McDonald's as an example when I, um, I'm i doing a presentation for Propel next week. And one of the examples I've used is McDonald's, which is almost on an hour by hour basis. They know whether it's going to be sort of, you know, van drivers or post, you know, kids that are going to sort of like eat Happy Meals or young families or whatever it is. And they can adapt their communication and their service model to, to cater for that. Um, and it kind of comes down to being able to, build a, a journey which which i call an optimized customer journey which means that you are you are getting the most revenue and the most return for for them being in your in your venue and it's that classic thing it starts with the real basic stuff like we know that on a saturday afternoon in a restaurant we're probably not going to offer a dessert because we want to you know turn some tables on a tuesday afternoon god we're we're offering coffee liqueurs you know all sorts because we don't have to turn those tables but if we could get into that almost, you know, on an hour by hour basis, um, you know, regionally as well. So every single site in a chain has got a very different sort of service model, if you if you like, based on who their fans are and their most valuable customers. I, I think the results would be would be you know significant. And it, it comes back to that thing of knowing who your customers are. Um, I, I speak to very few operators. You know, I've been in hospitality for nearly 30 years now, and I speak to very few operators who could honestly tell me who their customers are. And if they do have a go, they will generally tell me the same thing. They'll say, oh, it's, um, it's suits in the week and yummy mummies. And then on the weekend, it's a bit more family. And I think you literally could be describing any brand there. You know, that's anecdotal. That's me looking out into the restaurant and saying, well, who do I see? But it's only when you look into the data and you look at the spend and you look at the frequency and the recency and the how many different sites they're they're visiting, can you start to work out, well, who in this group are, are most valuable to you? And then when you get into that most valuable group, who are the personas or the avatars that that sit there? Um, and I'm I'm working with a working with a big leisure brand at the moment, and we've got a core, a core leisure product, and we talk about that core leisure product. But what we what we need to be drilling down into is who finds that leisure product because they're coming with kids and want something to do that's low cost and something that kids can do, and who's coming because they want a very adult, you know, night out. Well, we're going to talk to those two people in a completely different way, and we're going to serve them different communications, and we're going to make sure that on the times when we, it's most appropriate to have the adults in, spending a lot more money, that's who we're going to target. And on the times when we haven't got so many adults in because they're at the work, you know at work, that's when we're targeting the younger families because it spends less less of a concern at that point. And we just use all this data to build these optimized journeys and get all those marginal gains and tweak all the information we know. Um, and and I, I just think it will have a huge impact on our sales and on our on our profitability too. Funny when you say optimizing the journeys, because in my view, in any organization, there's two primarily journey. There's the the customer journey and the employee journey, and they have and they have to meet and be like yin and yang in principle, and they have to uh, in a way what you do in the employee journey in a way triples down to the the experience in the customer journey, and what happens in the customer journey triples back as a feedback mechanism to if you actually did right. But I actually often see that we, we changed a lot in the, the front of house and in our marketing and so on uh, on a strategic direction. But then often we actually forget 
to look at what's happening inside the organization actually they they maybe struggle it could be they they put a, a special offer or a dessert new launch of a dessert campaign but you don't actually look if you have the ability to execute on it properly in all units because you don't you haven't looked at data what's worked before in units you just take a blanket approach we roll it out everywhere and uh, we, we do that without doing a minimal viable product test. We don't involve the frontline employees to give us data about what's good about this, what's working, what doesn't work. Uh, is that a similar thing you've seen as well that I uh, give unbalance in, in the two experiences? Yeah, definitely. And it, it's funny because, you know, most of, this, most of the stuff I'm doing with data, I, I mean, I've, I started as an operator and then I moved into marketing. So I've got a really keen interest in, in both of those disciplines. And I believe that they work best when they when they work together and they're integrated. And I had a fascinating conversation with Alistair, who is the CEO of S4 Labour the other day. And we were talking about the fact that there's so much you can get by just analyzing the data within your labor forecasting. So, you know, typically businesses will operate to a labor percentage and they'll sort of say, you know, you've got 28% or whatever it is nowadays, you know, that's your labor percentage. You must keep within that. That's, that's your budget. And actually he's sort of saying that when you use the data, you can, um, I think he calls it uh, base and flex. And you can know, well, how many people do you have to have on to open the business, to close the business, to, you know, to, to run the site when there's no one in it. And then start predicting and using your using your marketing techniques as well to drive people in when you want them to, to be in. And then use that labor data to be able to say, well, when do we need people on? You know, is that that we need everybody to start at 7 p.m. on a Monday or are we better having, you know, a slow build up and then a slow a slow curve down and the idea is rather than being obsessed with you know um you've got a labor percentage and that's the labor percentage and that's the end you'll you'll hit your labor percentage if you if you flex your labor to match your sales and you can be really um prescriptive prescriptive about your sales and you can influence the sales by doing the right sort of marketing so all of all of this data can work together across all of the different you know functions and when you pull it all together i i think you've got i think you've got something that you know it has to result in success it has to yeah, it's very interesting uh, we talked before the interview about my experience with working with you know both data sets both from a profitability point of view sales point of view and employee and customer experience point of view in, in mcdonald's and how we actually build our strategies to improve uh, a situation both you know from the engagement bit to the experience bit to to sales and profit and uh, it was interesting the the the, the restaurant the adapted the the right people uh, practices and did it after the book were actually performing two percent better in sales than the other and that was the changing point for actually getting senior leaders to focusing on their people practices because can i be in the top 10 then because they were the top 10 and that's what they did differently they did, you know, they executed well on all the operation bit. We can't, there's nothing to do with that. But actually they, they on some certain areas within the people practices, they just went above and created that better experience for the staff, which then reflected out in the customer experience, but then reflected on sales. Um, and I think that's, that's really interesting because then you start really moving mountains because 2% in a McDonald's restaurant, if you just can imagine the, the revenue, it's really something that works, you know, on the bottom line. Um, and it got better for everyone. Everybody won. Every stakeholder won. It was not like we didn't have to discuss of reducing labor and so on. What is the, you know, if you want to be the, uh, you know, if you're the send master in, in data, in uh, hospitality what potentially returns of investment outcomes can you expect because wh why should i start this well firstly there is no return and there's no roi in managing your data okay because that's a housekeeping thing the roi comes from using the data um so you've got to you've got to use it and you've got to make that that insight you're getting actionable and um, so everything everything you do when you've when you've got your data you should be using it to try and get to a place of you know well what are your commercial objectives what are you trying to achieve and use the data to get there um and it's hard to measure the roi of the actions and um, particularly for me my business is not even 18 months old yet and so you know i've been operating when we've been largely closed 
I can tell you the size of the opportunity that I've been surfacing, you know, and it runs into many millions of pounds for, for some of the, the larger brands, the opportunity that, that sits within their data. Um, and it's going to come down to a number of things. It's going to come down to, you know, get getting that sort of like, you know, presentation like the guys in the football teams did and then deciding to use it and then use it properly and wholeheartedly and not just cherry pick the bits that kind of best suit the narrative that the, the leadership are, are trying to build. And then understand that, you know, data is there to, to drive all parts of the business. Absolutely it is. But, you know, your operational delivery and the decisions you make and the employment engagement that you've or employee engagement you've got, they're all just as important. Um, but data, data will never fail to deliver an ROI when you're using it. You know, it, it would just never. I can tell you that there's a lot more ROI in data than there is in gut instinct. So it's about, actually, what you're saying, if you want to return on investment, you need to start practicing discipline and, and patience around it to find these patterns where the gold is, because you don't find gold by just digging once in the in the ground. You need to really, really do your testing and finding out what really works for your organization. I guess also if that's not one fit one fit model here you know there's not one approach that will work for any organization you need to find your journey i guess as well 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 it well it is but i suppose the good news is that because so many businesses are starting from a sort of you know a, a very low base there is always opportunity so you know when i go into a business i'm i'm looking for the most valuable customers i'm i'm looking into that data and i find those most valuable customers and then I try and profile them in as much detail as possible. You know, how are they visiting? What are their visit patterns? You know, who are they? And then I look for those people or people that share very similar characteristics in the wider data set. Maybe they're not quite as, you know, recent. Maybe they don't visit quite as frequently or they're not quite as loyal. But they show really, really good promise and they share lots of the same characteristics. And then straight away, we can say, well, how do we communicate with those people? And you can use your CRM to instantly start communicating with those with those people because we've got their email address. We know who they are. So when I when I kind of leave a business, I, I always start with an audit of data. When I leave that, I leave that audit. It always says if you convert five percent from this slightly less valuable group to becoming more valuable, this is how much this is worth in your business based on your data, based on your sales patterns, based on your average spends. And it's always a, a huge number. And that's something that could be actioned straight away. That literally comes down to saying, here are the list of those emails. Um, you know, start communicating with them. Just start. And then ongoing, it's a test and learn thing. And the more we do, the more we learn. Um, you know, do, do the best you can until you know better. When you know better, do better. And and you can grow and you can develop. And, and I suppose it's like anything. The more you work with something and the more you get to know it, you know, the more the opportunities present themselves to you. Um, but there's there's always, there's always instant opportunity because nobody's doing anything with their data. So it's sitting there right to like to get started yeah and i guess about that one percent improvement every day i always talk about if you do one percent better on something every day you'll be 14 times better in 12 months time so that could be uh, 14 times much more revenue on some categories you were unknown about um moving uh, apart from from the big data conversation there's so much meat on it'll be also great to hear from you because you're like you have gone on a journey in hospitality what what is this there you know we can take the data angle what is the biggest failure you have made uh in your in your career and what did you learn from it because we always hear about success but the real gems is in the failures often yeah it's, it's funny because at the time you know say if a job didn't work out you know or i didn't make the impact i wanted to make in a in an organization um it, it probably felt like a massive failure at the time and and i would have taken it very personally and it would have really bothered me because you know i want to do well and i, I want to make an impact and i want to leave a place in a better better state than i found it and now with the benefit of hindsight you know that that would have felt like huge failure then but with the benefit of hindsight and and you know a bit of age i can kind of look at it and I go well first of all so much of that was out of my control you know and i didn't realize it at the time because i was so like you know in the weeds of it but so much of it would have been out of my control and had that not happened i wouldn't be here today running data hawks which is doing incredibly well and you know loving what i'm doing 
so I'm not sure I could say there's been any failure. There's nothing that if you said to me now, can you go back and, you know, delete anything from from your career? I, I don't think I'd delete anything. I really don't. Um, didn't feel like that at the time. But but looking back now, no, I wouldn't. There's nothing I would take away. Yeah, that is super interesting. You sometimes need the pain to become the, the person you are today. And you can't see that before you, you walk through the pain in a way. Which, uh, if we'll, it's just, uh, there's probably some people, there's always some people that's very influential to you. And, uh, you know, especially if you stay in the industry for, for a long period of time, decades, as I've done myself, who are the, the people that has been most influential to you uh, through your career and in your life? Who have been part of forming you as an individual and business owner today? Um. Well, I mean, it's it's quite personal, but it's um, my my two grandparents, my two grandmas, and they were, I mean, both of them have passed passed away now. They would both be a hundred and one, um, and they were both very elderly when they died. But they were those classic Northern women who, you know, took control of a family during wartime. Um, you know, one grandma worked in an ammunition factory while raising five kids while her husband was at war. The other grandma raising two kids and like, holding down two jobs, um, you know, and trying to keep the family business afloat while all her you know, brothers and everybody were were away at war. And and I just think the the drive and the decisions that they were forced to make and they just made and they just sort of plowed ahead has been hugely inspirational to me. Um, one of my grandmas in particular, we were we were laughing about this a few days ago, actually, with me and my mum. She she decided she wanted to move house. And my granddad said, no, we don't need to move house. And she said, I want to move house. And he said, no, I'm putting my foot down. And um, so she just went and bought a house and didn't tell him. And they they moved house. Um, and that was that was the kind of stuff that she got up to, which you know, for a, for a woman that you know was born a hundred years ago, that's that's some that's some bold some bold behaviour, um, and those two women, both my grandparents, have had a huge influence. I mean, there's so many grandchildren come from a really big family, and you know th- their influence can be felt throughout everybody, throughout my own mum, my own dad, you know, my sisters, um, and my 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 grandma who died sort of two years ago. I mean, we were incredibly close. We were incredibly close. And and when she passed away, it was, I felt such loss because I'm not even sure I realised it at the time, but just how much of a cheerleader she was for me. You know, just how much that every time I went to her and went, man, man, you know, this is, this is crap. You know, she was just like, get back out there. You know, she was like, you're Vic, go on, show, show them. And and just gave me just gave me the fight and the drive and the tenacity. I think that that I've that I've got and I've displayed and, and I've shown running my own business. Um, so they were both incredibly incredibly um, influential. Um, there's there's a, a woman called Maisie Maisie Maddox who is a life coach and she's my friend now. But she's you know she's a life coach. What I love about Maisie is that and I've said this before a, a few weeks ago she she reminds me who I am when I forget. So when I have a bit of a wobble and I have a bit of a, I can't run this business, I can't do all this stuff, like it's too hard, I can't juggle everything, or I've got to make a big decision or I've got to start like I'm doing now, I've got to expand the business. Um, you know, I get on the phone with Maisie and she reminds me, you know, exactly who I am, why I'm here, that I'm more than capable. And I always come off the phone from her just kind of going, yeah, it's fine, it's going to be fine. You know, it's just a little wobble. Um, so she's just an absolute cheerleader and just, you know, is almost behind me constantly, sort of like, you know, just going, come on, come on. Um, and, and somebody else who I've, I've met, you know, relatively recently, I met her at TGI Fridays about four or five years ago, um, a lady called Gail Balfour. She runs a research company and she just knows so much stuff. She just knows so much stuff. And, you know, there's not been a book that she's recommended that I haven't loved. There's not been a podcast she's recommended that I haven't that I haven't loved. Um, we catch up a lot. You know, so we work together sometimes. We catch up a lot. And every time I'm on the phone with her, I, um, I you know, I come off sort of like she, she's an inspiration. She's a joy. And I come off sort of like feeling a bit a bit taller and a bit a bit more inspired than I than I did before and and so much of the stuff that I know now it's because she sort of pointed it out and sent me a link and sort of said you should read this you should look at that um so yeah I'd, I'd say that 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 those people have been hugely influential in in my career 
Oh, some really, really great and strong, uh, very personal connections. That's actually because uh, uh, sometimes you have conversation, and and that's that's cool as well. You have your your Richard Bransons and so on, but uh, it's really inspiring to hear that it comes from from your from your grandmom and the strengths. Uh, I have a similar story. My grandmom is a uh, you know really also a similar kind of lady from the countryside that uh, nobody could stop. Uh, she was yeah. just bull- for and that was probably why my mom became an entrepreneur herself and so on how do you then uh, every day when you have to now you're your own business owner you've been in a very demanding jobs before because i think it's very important in these time we we all learn from each other how we can show up pro or stronger every day and how we actually get through it because it, it's tough you know it's a, it's no doubt from a hospitality point of view we're probably in the bottom uh in a way how we how we feel about our industry what's gonna happen you know the uh, you know it's all unclear and we have to get up every day and actually just get on with it how do you get up every day and just find yourself in the right place to to deliver the things you need to do um i I think during lockdown you know what there was a there was a point in lockdown where sort of like you know me showing up would mean that i'd put some mascara on and and you know wasn't wearing a tracksuit sort of thing because it just all started to feel a bit never-ending um and I suppose I'm really lucky in that I'm very energetic and I'm and I'm very driven anyway. And even when I kind of have a bit of a low moment, I tend to sort of be able to, you know, self self start myself. Um, I, I suppose I suppose what helps me sort of show up is I like to listen to people. So um, you know, I've I've got a 22 year old daughter who I speak to all the time. Um, she you know she's got her own place now, but we speak a lot, and she gives me loads of advice, and she gives me loads of perspective that I didn't I didn't have that that I use, and isn't shy to tell me when she thinks I'm being a bit of a dick. So that's that's always you know good to good to hear. Um, you know I, I I have lots of catch ups with people that aren't about work, um, because I think showing up is about sort of being able to be. I suppose be relevant to what people are looking for or what people need to hear in that in that moment. Um, and and I think I'm quite an empathetic person, as in I can generally read, you know, the mood of what's happening and know how I can how I can kind of contribute and and how I can help that. Um, but I suppose it's 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 been present, you know, it's it's been present. I you know look after myself and you know get get some half decent rest and you know I used to go for like long walks in the countryside and and stuff like that and having a four-hour bath and and stuff like that but when I when I show up um there's a huge amount of energy a huge amount of passion a huge amount of presence um and and I I think I think that's just a a way I've always lived yeah it's, it's very interesting um especially in hospitality you said the word rest it's not something that is uh, connected to hospitality is the work hard mentality and that we need to do and actually it's actually not serving you because actually uh, when when you don't rest you can't show up with the energy you need because you need a lot of energy and passion to run the hospitality business or being present in the hospitality because so many moving parts all the time and i think that's one of the things i've learned myself as well like okay you need to be a curb fee of when you not work and work and it's really hard especially when you own business and or, or, or you ha- you you're, you're doing everything in the early days and uh, you have all hats on and you need to deal with with all things that's not something and i think i think that the thing we we hopefully can take out of the the pandemic is that we are a bit better to switch off sometime as leaders because then we can make better decisions when we need to show up and play our most impact um what would uh, your prediction be for, I always ask people this in the moment, because it's, everybody has a crystal ball around the hospitality industry right now, and it's a free shot because the, the canvas <laughs> is almost blank, you can say. What, what is your prediction about what's going to happen the next you know, 12 to 24 months? How do you see things evolve? We are now in the early phases of opening up for outdoor dining has just started earlier this week and uh, in a month's time hopefully we switch on for indoor dining what's going to happen with the industry if we just take it on a uk level so there's there's what should happen and there's what is likely to happen um and i'm afraid that i think that there's probably two different things um so my big concern is that we're going to just go back and try and do exactly as we've always done um 
you know, we've, we've got the opportunity to reset. You know, we need to look around ourselves and see that the, the world has changed. And um, I, I talk about this a lot, that over the last 20 years, we've gone from being all about choice and innovation, then about discounts and value, you know, then about the experience economy. And now we're in the era of personalization. And we know that the Gen Z age group, and it is just an age group, they account for a massive proportion of the eating and drinking market, about 40%. And that doesn't even include all the older groups that they influence and are part of. And these are these are a group of people that have grown up with smartphones, you know, with Spotify, with Netflix. Personalization is second nature to this group of people. And my concern is that we'll just go back to doing what we've always done, which is to just work around the clock and graft and be really passionate and make big decisions and, and, and all of that. And we'll forget that, that that other stuff is happening and that the world is changing. I mean, the world was changing long before COVID, but there is no way that the new, you know, the new world post-pandemic, however that lands, there is no way that the stuff we did before can be relevant and can be right for this, for this new way of doing it. So I, I hope that people will um, will take a bit of time to to reset. I hope that once all of the the panic and the and the and the fear, which has been completely understandable, about people losing livelihoods and wondering what will become of the industry, and and that's been absolutely justified and and right, will very quickly once we start to reopen get to a place of sort of like looking up, looking at other industries, looking around our own industry and seeing that the world has changed. And if we're honest, it had changed a long time before before COVID. So how do we start to how do we start to, you know, put put stuff in place? Because people will always want to eat and drink. Our job is to adapt to how they want to do that and and how, you know, how we can how we can get them there. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm hoping that that's that's the prediction. A period of a period of reflection and then a, an acknowledgement that the world has changed. Super interesting, Victoria, because I uh, I praised uh, you know uh, long before the pandemic as well as an industry where we, we were you know heading the wrong way in many ways, uh, especially because that you know it seemed like we were ended in this problem around you know we came from an industry that was based on uh, cheap labor and cheap rent. And suddenly we didn't have that anymore. We didn't achieve the profits we need actually to run healthy organizations, healthy for the employees, healthy for the shareholders, healthy for the customers. We had to cut corners. We had to push push the envelope so hard it actually, you know, the fun was going out of it in a way. Um, and I think we, as you say, that as Albert Einstein also said, there's no problem that can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. So we actually need to use this opportunity we have now uh, as as the dust settles, hopefully as things starts to reopen and we find out what does it mean, where are we as an industry, where is my business, where is my team, we can start actually rebuilding uh, uh, something that's, that looks different, actually serve the customers as they, they want. And also, you know, you, you talked about your daughter. Uh, I think also we need to understand that talent will have a very different perception about working in hospitality after the last year. So we need to build that up again. And we can only do that by doing the right thing uh, because else we're not going to have the amount of talent we need to run run our businesses. That's that's uh, that's another not, another biggie, I think, that will come on top of this as, as a challenge, which has always been a challenge. I just think it's going to be magnified in, in the, uh, the post-pandemic world. So, yeah, really interesting perspective you had there. You mentioned uh, books before, so I'm just going to throw this in before we're going to finish off as well. Uh, what would be the one book you will give uh, most people uh, you are giving books? You know, what is that one book that really, you know, where you feel when you give that away, I add a lot of value in a person's life? Well, I have given this one a lot away, actually. I'm glad that that was the... I wondered what you were going to ask me then. Um, I think Start With Why was was hugely influential to me. Um, and it's such an easy read. It's only got about 100 pages. But the, the idea of knowing the why of why you do things, just it made me realise how as much as we're as an industry that's built on, you know, passion and, you know, and emotion how little we reflect on the why people do things you know we we just look at we look at metrics that aren't really that passion or emotionally based um so i'd, I'd say that's been an, in, an incredibly important 
book. Um, and it's it's one I haven't read in, in a while, actually. Um, the, there is one other book, which is The First 90 Days. And this is because I see so often, and um, and I suppose the older I've got, you know, and and the longer I've spent in this industry, the more I can the more I can see it, is that we have a tendency to just go to the next job, and we take all the baggage, and we take all the experience, and we we take all of that stuff, and we think, well, you know, we did we did this at that job, we'll just do more of the same because that's why we've got hired, and we never ever stop to just go. First of all, let's go with all of the the emotional baggage that came with that job and that experience but also what's the approach that's required in this particular job it's not about me doing more of the same it's about me adapting to the set of circumstances i i find my myself in um so i've i've read that book you know a, a few times over the last couple of years because it was a huge thing for me to go from being a marketing director um, to then running my own business and you know and there was there was a lot of brain resetting that that I needed to do, um, both professionally and just just emotionally as well. So that's another book that whenever whenever I've heard somebody's getting a new job or, or whatever, I've sent them a copy of that because it, it's it's hugely useful, hugely useful. So uh, start with why with Simon Sinek, uh, I guess we were talking about, and the first ninety days we'll put it in the show notes. Last question before we we round up, uh, Victoria, of this really interesting conversation is that. What kind of advice or the top three advice would you give to to leaders out there right now? We are talking about the playbook has been ripped to pieces. You can start writing a new one. What would your top three advice be? Um, I, I think the first thing for me is that we need to start thinking as an industry more like an e-commerce um, business because we're so we're so um, tied up and restricted and and chokeholded by this this idea that you know well we deliver experiences to people and that's why we do the things that we do and actually when you strip it back we are trying to get people to buy stuff or or make a booking and the process is exactly the same it's about engaging with them based on what they're looking to do and the the you know the solution to the problem that they've got that that you're offering and it's about how to acquire people it's how to convert them to spending more money or visiting more frequently and retaining them for as long as possible so you're not spending all your money on on acquisition you're getting an increasing you know amount of ROI so i think the first thing is start thinking like an e-commerce um, and I think that's going to require a couple of things, really. First of all, you're going to have to throw your ego in the bin um, and you're going to need to look up and look around at what everybody else is doing, um, you know, outside this industry, because we've got we've got such a, a hang up in this industry that no other industry is like us. You know, and that's true in, in many, many ways, but there's lots that can be learned from other industries. Um, so I, I think that's the other thing. And. And I think the third thing is probably just start with your data. Just start. You know, you're you're not going to necessarily be, you know, delivering Uber personalization within three months, but just doing something small is better than doing nothing. So just start on that journey. Just get an audit of your data, you know, so you know where you are. Just just see what the situation is, you know, what data do you need to start capturing? What data is really useful and you can action now? You know, what platforms do you need to gather more data or to activate and and to to make use of, of the of the data you've got? Um, because otherwise we can talk about data all day long. And I hear lots of operators talking about data, it's a bit of a buzzword, but unless you can know exactly where you are and what you need to do next to start on that journey, then it's just gonna continue to remain, you know. A, a really big and untapped idea that's a uh, super super advice and i think yeah one thing is to turn on the the channels of revenue as we've done in the uh, pandemic another thing is start to think like an omni-channel business or e-commerce business you call it and then you know start learning from other industries which i think could be really good thing on all areas from employee experience to to uh, the operation setup to how you use technology there's so much we could learn if we and we need to 
to uh, to learn from the best. Uh, and then again, yeah, as we talked about here, you know, the importance of uh, getting your data, get the foundations in place there so you can start using it properly to make decision. Where can uh, people find you if they want to check out more, want to read some of your the interesting things you share on, on uh, I know LinkedIn is a place, other places? I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Yeah, you can always find me on LinkedIn, Victoria Searle. Um, you, can, you can get me anytime by email, victoria at wearedatahawks.com. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always up for just a bit of a chat. I'm always up for let's get, you know, let's get half an hour um, and we'll just talk through where you are and what you're trying to achieve and, 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 and just have a bit of a discussion about it. Because this is, this is more than me running a business. This is me trying to change the way we approach marketing in this industry. So the more, the more people I can sort of like share that message with and bang that drum with, the happier I am. So I'm, I'm always up for a conversation. Great. Thank you so much, Victoria, for coming on. Uh, power and energy to, to you and uh, the team. And uh, we will uh, definitely uh, catch up in a due course. Uh, we will be talking about data in the years to come. I'm so 100% sure this is the, the time, as well as you say, where we start to think different about. So thank you for taking your time out and uh, telling us all about your experience and how to, to, to use data in, in, in a better way. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Victoria, for sharing your wisdom and insights about data and how you as a leader can use it to drive better outcomes across your business. If you want to get more insights on how to become better at using data to build better relationship with your customers, please also tune in to episode 81 with Dylan Solanke, the UK EMEA, director at Sprout, and we will be talking customer loyalty in that episode. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bizsimply.com on our social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly on advice at bizsimply.com. Also, thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer and editor from the podcast collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to our community and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and be maverick. <laughs>